Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Doris is a mom. Um, Doris uh, has a son named Guy. Guy is 26 years old. And one month and one day ago, uh, he was taken hostage. Doris is um, your neighbor. Uh, She is a Jew who lives here in the United States of America. And Doris is desperate. She said yesterday to members of the U.S. Congress on the one-month anniversary of the disappearance, I mean, the the kidnapping, I won't say disappearance, the kidnapping of her son. She said, I need your help. I am a part of your people. You are a part of Israel, and America has been the best ally, and I am so proud of being an American, and I am so proud of being an Israeli as well. I need you now. There is nothing helping me now. And then Doris hesitated. And if you've heard this audio, then you know that Doris then makes a pretty profound religious confession. She said, I pray, which I didn't do before. And then she paused again, and she looked at the members of Congress, and she said, but please help me. I am continuing to pray with and for the people who have been taken hostage by Hamas. Um, I am continuing to pray for their families. I am continuing to um, hope for the advocacy of the U.S. State Department on behalf of those who are Americans, but on behalf of all of the people who were taken hostage by Hamas on that day and the families who, um, who had members of their family killed in those terrorist attacks. Yesterday was uh, the one-month mark, and it's a meaningful moment in the Jewish calendar of grief. Um, And so they will move from Shiva um, into uh, another period of mourning now. Um, So during, uh, well, Shiva is the first seven days, and then Shloshim, um, which is uh, the 30 days um, during which they refrain from many activities, and now they will move into um, a third um, phase of of the grief calendar. Um, and I, I felt like just having talked about grief at the end of the last hour, we would turn to this here for a moment at the opening of this second hour of Mornings with Carmen as we bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. God is, um, God is drawing his people's attention to himself. Did you hear that? Did you hear Doris say, I pray, which I didn't do before. God um, uses all things. God uses what others mean for evil. Um, God is able to transform crucifixion on a cross into resurrection and newness of life. God, God works with the dark, the ugly, 
the hostile, the violent, the God knows what to do with it. He can transform it. He can redeem it. God is even now drawing attention to himself through this horrific, awful event in our shared history. Doris says, I pray, which I didn't do before. A few uh, things in terms of worldview news I want to have you be aware of as you get out there into the world that God so loves. I want you to be equipped for the conversations of the day. We talked a couple of times about the fact that the people of Ohio were going to have the opportunity yesterday to vote on a ballot measure um, that proposed a an amendment to their state's constitution, which would enshrine the right to abortion access in their state. That passed yesterday. So the people of Ohio have affirmed their desire to enshrine the right to abortion access in their state constitution. They also passed a ballot measure yesterday to legalize marijuana for adult recreational use. Um, You are going to hear a lot about that in the news today and in the coming days. Uh, Let's be clear that in Ohio, the laws on the books currently ban abortion after six weeks. So when this constitutional amendment goes into effect in 30 days, that will obviously be nullified. Um, But there are about three dozen abortion-related laws in effect right now in Ohio, and so part of what's going to happen over the next few weeks um, is the sifting and sorting process. There will be conversations about parental consent, informed consent requirements, limits on who can provide abortions, in what facilities, in what manners, by what means, um, all kinds of things about state funding related to abortion. But I think it's important to remember, like really critically important to remember, more than half of the women in America who are, are experiencing abortion are inducing their own abortions at home through the use of a combination of pharmaceutical drugs that they can easily access across state lines through the U.S. mail. And so these state laws matter because life matters and the protection of life matters. But let's Let's be sober and honest about the status of things in the United States of America. More than half of abortions in this country are no longer of the kind that you are imagining in a clinic by a clinician. They are happening at home with a combination of pharmaceutical drugs. So let's be, um, let's be people who are advocating for life, not only the life of the child, but the life of the mother. Let's be advocating for full life and real life and all of life for all of life. Um, And let's be figuring out how we can come alongside pregnant moms and give them some hope um, for a future worthy not only of the life of their child, but a life worth living for themselves as well. Um, There's a lot going on in the national news and in the international news. And certainly um, we turn to all of that with, um, with our hearts turned toward God. And let's just be mindful today as we, as we walk into the world that we do so as citizens of another kingdom, agents of God's grace, um, and genuine ministers of reconciliation. So let me encourage you uh, to bring the mind of Christ to bear on all of the headline news of the day as you are, um, as you are God's ambassador in the world today. Our friend Heather Zeiger is joining us next. You know her. She's a science writer out of Dallas, Texas. She's a research analyst at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. We're going to talk about, um, hey, what if men could make their own egg cells? What? Really? Yes, that's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. (laughs) 
Good morning, Heather. Morning, Carmen. All right. Uh, I don't even quite know if a person could read this and make sense of it, but what if men could make their own egg cells? Yeah, so this is an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal, and it was basically speculating about uh, this very real possibility based on new technologies that have allowed scientists to create mouse embryos using uh, without the use of egg or sperm. And so one of one of the examples in there was uh, they created a mouse egg cell from a skin cell. They then converted that skin cell to an egg cell, fertilized it with sperm from a mouse, created an embryo, implanted it, and the mouse gave birth to a baby mouse. And so this was, and I want to be clear, this was an incredibly complex process, and humans are even more complex than mice. So they haven't done this in humans yet, but they're exploring this technology with the idea of doing this in humans. Um, and then there's other types of technology like embryoids where you're, you can just use one genetic uh, component, so one person instead of two people. So this has implications for people in social or biological situations where they would not normally have children, right? So that would be like single people, people past the age of uh, fertility and same-sex relationship, relationships, um, being able to have and genetically I related children. Yeah, so always a good opportunity for us to consider a couple of biblical things here, right? First of all, mm -hmm. God's design, how God designed it to work, God's good um, ordering of of the design of human life and human relationships and how God intends for this to to all work. Um, and then the conversation about just because we can do something, just because we have figured out how to do something doesn't mean we should. Would you like to address yeah. either one of those? Yeah, actually, those two are related. Well, to me, they're related. But yeah, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And here's why. And this is related to God's design. Okay, um, so there's a lot of ethical questions here, but probably the one that intersects those two is asking, what about the children that are conceived this way? Hmm. So that's kind of the question that's left out of all of this. Well, and let me ask this, Heather, between here and there, between mice and making mice this way, and as you have said, human beings are far more complex. So the, you know, imagine down the road that a child is actually a healthy child is actually born through this inventive process. What about mm -hmm. all the children between here and there? Yeah, so this is a research ethics question, and this is one that, um, you know, as a scientist, I find disturbing is that, okay, you have to destroy a bunch of embryos, first of all, to get to the point of having one that you could implant. And not only that, but what if you implant one and it grows abnormally? or it destroys, it kills the person that is the, the mother that is bearing the child. I mean, there are so many reasons why this could go wrong. Uh, so, and, and, you know, I mean, those are just the things that I can think of off the top of mm -hmm. my head. And then what if there's a child that is born and the child has severe uh, disabilities to the point that they do not live very long outside the womb? I mean, at some point, You've got to ask yourself, well, is this even is this even a research is this even the kind of research that we can pursue? And I, I don't I don't think it is, honestly. Who makes that decision? Like who who gets to decide doctors, uh, scientists, researchers should not do this? It's not just a question of all the things that that can and will go wrong. It is simply wrong. Like who who tells scientists you stop? You can't do that. You know what? So that is a really good question because 
in one sense, we want to we want to allow for innovation, but we want to put bounds on it. And here in the United States, if something is privately funded, it has uh, those kinds of things have a lot more leeway, if you will, than things that are federally funded. So if some, oh, I don't know, wealthy Silicon Valley guy wants to fund some crazy research, it's really uh, difficult to put bounds on certain aspects of that research. Now, we do have clear laws about human subject research, so you can enforce those. But of course, in this country, research on embryos, you know, there's there's some allowance there and there's some that's not. There's the 14-day rule, which of course in um, in the UK, there's some scientists that have said, well, let's uh, let's get rid of the 14-day rule or let's expand, expand it to the 28-day rule. And that that's just a rule that says, if you're growing an embryo in the lab, you have to uh, destroy it after 14 days. You're not allowed to grow it beyond 14 days. Um, and that even, that includes things that look like embryos, but maybe would not, would not grow into a child. So like these organoids. So yeah, that's an important question. Um, and I think there's a gray area there for the kind of nascent human life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, mm-hmm. um, it's like, it's a frontier of science that um, most of us do not often think about. And when we start to think about it, it is like genuinely frightening. Um, so thank you for being a person who thinks about it and helps us think about it as well. I um, want to remind you that um, that Heather works for the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. And you can check out those resources at cbhd.org. Um, Heather, let's um, let's pivot to a conversation um, about this article that you and I both read in The Guardian about um, wellness and sedating women um, with self-care. What what is this? What concern is being raised here? Yeah. So and I recommend this article. It's a long read, but I, I recommend it. I think that I think that people there's not a lot. We can't cover everything here. But basically, The Guardian had this interesting article on the wellness industry. And what it's doing is it's criticizing the way the industry sucks women into a kind of lifestyle and then sells a gospel message of wellness salvation. So just to get our definition straight, the wellness industry, that this is a huge umbrella term. It can include everything that's basically outside or adjacent to Western evidence-based medicine. So things like functional medicine, somatic therapies, diet coaches, alternative therapies, even things like meditative walking, you know, so it can include lots of things that just to be clear, these things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. And in fact, there's some good evidence that many of these things are helpful, uh, especially used alongside with, you know, Western medicine, like what we consider the stuff you go to the doctor for. You know, I've known people who have had relief from pain from like acupuncture and, you know, supplements that have helped digestive needs, all that stuff. Here's where the problem is. That's not what the article's talking about. It's talking about um, the salvific message from a profit-seeking industry that's promising relief from all your pain, all your suffering, all your mental existential anguish. If you just by this, that, or the other. And, uh, and Carmen, I really liked this. Stati- I didn't like the statistic, but I think it's really helpful to put things in perspective. The wellness industry is valued at something like $4.4 trillion. And it mm. makes its money 
by very lax regulations. So I don't know if you know this, but supplements are not FDA approved. Um, these tests that a lot of people take and when they're, and it's not that the tests are bad, but because some of them are unregulated, that oftentimes these tests that, that you can take to say, oh, you've got toxins here or you have problems here. And oh, by the way, I have a solution I can sell you. Some of those tests could be totally fake. And honestly, there's not a good industry standard and there's not good regulations. So it's preying upon vulnerable people, a lot of times women, because of course our cultural climate is not conducive to balanced life, mental well-being. We're expected to be perfect. Quite frankly, our culture is not even conducive to getting a good night's sleep at night. So rather than addressing the symptoms here, it's like the, the this unregulated wellness industry is being used to make money and douse symptoms. So that, that's that's kind of the quick and dirty rundown of this very long article that uh, this author writes uh, and writes about it in a very thoughtful, sympathetic, but also critical way. Yeah, um, I, I thought this quote was good. We're sedating women with a consumerist self-care. Let's mm-hmm. face it, you're not stressed because you're not doing enough yoga or taking enough bubble baths. Um, there are bigger reasons why you feel stressed out. Um, you don't have maternity benefits. Your boss is emailing you after 6 p.m. and your partner isn't um, helping with a workload at home. So there's like there are these conversations to be had. So don't hear Heather and I saying that all supplements are bad or you shouldn't be getting a test to identify toxins in your body. What we are saying is um, this is not uh, the the source of salvation. And um, there are underlying issues that you should be addressing absolutely that, um, you know, are not going to be resolved by changing your diet or a meditative walk. This doesn't work that way. So, yeah, thank you for your reflections on that. And if you guys want the link to that article, I'm happy to send it to you. Remember, you can just text me 877-933-2484. Next up, Heather's going to tell us where where is the real center of the universe? She, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. Hey, if you enjoy what you're listening to here, would you consider subscribing to other great faith radio podcasts like mine? Search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Continuing our conversation with our Science friend, Heather Zeiger. All right, Heather, the big think has asked the question, where's the real center of the universe? Of course, they believe it starts with a bang. Um, what What is this conversation about and why does it even matter? Is the universe constantly expanding? And if so, where is the center of it? Dun, yeah, dun, so, dun. <laughs> so I'll give you the uh, TLDR is that, you know, we need to be humble about what we're what we're studying when we're studying the universe. Okay. And because it's actually, we're not quite sure where the center of the universe is. But let me explain to you why. And here's the picture, the word picture that I think we all can relate to. So a lot of us think of the the universe as starting with a big bang. And that's an explosion model, right? We th- we think of looking at kind of an atom bomb type explosion. But that assumes we're outside looking in. And in reality, we're in the system we're studying and we're part of creation to use biblical terms. So that means we need to have a little bit of humility. So the word picture I like is that thinking about um, when you're baking bread and I'm not a baker, but but I know people who are and they start with a clump of dough and maybe you got raisin bread. So you got your raisins in there and you let that dough leaven 
And as it leavens, it expands. That's where the yeast is doing its yeast thing. And if you've got raisins in there, and those raisins represent the stuff of the universe, galaxies and all of that, as the dough expands, the raisins are moving outward. Mm-hmm. So from each individual 100%. raisin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So because if you if you have raisin bread, you don't have like one clump of raisins and the rest is bread. You have it spread out. The raisins spread out. So from each individual raisin's perspective, everything else is moving. But me on my little raisin, it it doesn't look like anything's moving. But of course, it's all expanding outward. Now, here's the problem. What if each of those raisins also affected how it's how the other raisins moved? In other words, what if this raisin and this other raisin next to it, like they were affecting how fast they moved? So let's let's get back to physics here. So if the universe itself is expanding and everything in the universe acts like it's a gravitational pull on each other. So the things next to each other, the galaxies next to each other are affecting how everything moves. That makes it very difficult to determine. Wait a second. So what are we studying? How fast is the universe moving? Additionally, we're limited by the capabilities of our own instruments. It's not like our instruments can see to the edges of the universe. Remember, we're within the system that we're studying. So we know the universe has a beginning, but we don't necessarily know where the edges of the universe is because we're not outside looking in. So look, from a Christian perspective, we need to remember, um, I think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I also think of God's response to Job when Job questions the creator. And sometimes our temptation is to make the universe simpler or more explainable, you know, fit within my model. But the reality is that the universe is reflecting God's glory, not man's glory. And so, yeah, we don't understand how big the universe is. It's way more complex how fast things are moving away from each other. And so while we can understand some things, it's kind of prideful to, ex- to assume that we know everything when we're part of that system, including the fact that we can't really know the center because we don't even know where the edges of the universe are. So that's, I, I recommend the article. They have some great pictures and stuff, but that's my kind of <laughs> quick, quick uh, distillation of it. Okay, I had to look up TLDR. I'm just letting you know, <laughs> I'm going all the way back to your, your seemingly throwaway comment that I then had to Google um, tell us, Heather, what is TLDR? Yeah. So if someone says TLDR, that means too long, didn't read. I know. And so I am totally 100% using that with people who I know have not read the Bible. I am totally, absolutely <laughs> taking that from you. Too long, didn't read. And I am going to start applying that in my in my everyday life. I, I already have thoughts. So I thank you for the gift of TLDR today. Mm-hmm. Too long, didn't read. Mm-hmm. You think the Bible is too long and you didn't read it? And that, this not to you, Heather, but to those listening, you think the Bible is too long and you didn't read it, and that's why you still wonder where the center of the universe is. <laughs> I, I, it's my summation statement about where's the real center of the universe. If you did not consider the Bible too long that you didn't read it, you would know. Okay, we have like uh, a, two minutes for you to read us in on the, this great piece that you have at Mind Matters on China's espionage and IP theft, which sounds really hinky and people are going to wonder why we're talking about it. But but tell us why we're talking about it here. Yeah, well, this brought up some questions about like the ethics of spying, actually. 
turns out there are norms of spying. And um, so the, the, I wrote this article because the Intelligence Alliance, known as Five Eyes, uh, those, these are the big spying um, organizations in the U.S., Canada, uh, U.K., Australia, New Zealand. They came together in warning about China's this unprecedented level of stealing uh, cyber espionage, IP theft, intellectual property theft, sabotage, blackmail, that kind of thing of, of you know, tech companies and that and so they were saying this is beyond the norms of espionage and i'm like are there norms to spying and in fact there are and we know this um you've seen it in the bible where god actually told people to spy now i'm, I'm not saying that this should be this is where we make our norms but you see that there's examples of spying in the bible you see examples of spying in real life where actually nation states do this to protect themselves and to help help decrease civilian casualties some people think that it, nation states have an obligation to spy on potential threats so that they can decrease uh, potential civilian casualties if a attack comes. Um, you've seen this in the news. Like uh, a lot of people say that the, the, the intelligence, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, that that was an example of a good use of intelligence and that, you know, people were able to, the U.S. and others were able to warn Ukraine and they could fortify themselves and decrease civilian casualties. And then, of course, um, what's going on with the Hamas attack in the Gaza Strip, where that was an example of um, bad intelligence, where they were unprepared mm. and that attack was devastating. So uh, that, that was just a quick thing. I was writing specifically about China, but... In doing that, I was asking myself, hey, what are the ethics of spying? All right. Um, so just so that you know, you can apply this today in your conversations about college football. Uh, the NCAA does not outlaw sign stealing, but apparently sending spies to other opposing uh, teams games and then paying them to scout and use electronic equipment to bring back the signs that the other team is using is naughty. So there you go. There are rules to spying, even in football. Heather, that brings it all around. And, um, and so thank you so very much. What, um, what, what a joy to visit with you today. Uh, that's Heather Zeiger. You can connect with her online, heatherzeiger.com, or at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. All right. Uh, when you look around the world today, what do you see? Who do you see? Um, do you see Jesus? meeting both the physical and the spiritual needs of people. Noel Brewer Yates joins us next. We're going to talk about both. We're going to talk about both meeting people with the fullness of the gospel, all the grace and all the truth. So before that, let me just read what Vernon wrote. Vernon wrote this. My oldest daughter, Noel, was 12 years old when I decided to take her on her first missions trip. I was recovering from what would be the first of 18 surgeries. The doctors told me I had cancer and I may not survive. I wanted Noel to see the way the rest of the world lived and to see it from God's perspective. Fast forward to today, not only did I survive cancer, yay, but I was also able to take Noel on many more trips around the world. Today, she leads World Help, the organization I founded more than 30 years ago. Noel has a heart of compassion for the most vulnerable people and some of the most remote places. And I could not be more proud. That's a note from Vernon. Don't you want to meet Noel? She joins us next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Noelle, among other things, is the daughter of Vernon. Noelle Brewer-Yates, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I wish I had had my mom, Ruth Ann, write something um, when I wrote a book because that (laughs) made me so happy. Oh, (laughs) it was very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Tell us about your mom. Tell us about World Help, because this book, both living outside the either or of your faith, um, this this is you um, in addition to being an encouragement to us. So read us in a little bit on your story. Yeah. So I, you know, since you've already shared about my dad, I I like to tell people that. Oh, your dad. See, I missed that. I missed that. This is your dad, not your mom. No, yeah, that's my dad that that wrote that. I'm happy to tell you about my mom too, but (laughs) that's my dad. And he he started the organization that I now lead um, more than 30 years ago. And so I grew up in this work and I like to tell people that, you know, my dad didn't just tell me how to live. He showed me and he took me on the journey with him. And I started traveling with him around the world when I was 12 years old. So I was exposed to the needs of the world at a very, very early age. And his passion became my passion. And I was able to work with him for many years, still do, but I took over the organization um, in the fall of 2019. So yeah, so that's a little bit of the background, just of the connection there with my dad and I. But as far as the book, um, you know, like I said, I was exposed to this at such an early age, never really felt called uh, to be a full-time missionary, but very passionate about quote-unquote mission work. But the older I got, I, I just was a bit unsettled with the word missions and what it had kind of come to mean to people of faith, uh, maybe the stereotypical meanings of it. And I just sort of had a a moment where I started to realize that it kind of has become what I see one of the greatest tragedies in Christianity today, that this belief that a person's spiritual condition is all that matters to God, or that saving souls for heaven is more important than bringing God's kingdom to life here on earth, that physical and spiritual hope really can't be part of the same team, but we've kind of made them options, so to speak, on like a Christian menu we have to choose from. And one has kind of become humanitarianism, and the other is missions. We've made it this either Mm. or. When the truth is what, what I have seen played out around the world is the beauty of both. And I just wondered, what if we didn't have to choose? What if it could really be about both? Because what I've seen firsthand is it's the combination of meeting people's physical and spiritual needs that truly transforms people's lives. Talk with us about both. When you use the term both, you mean what and what? I mean, meeting people's physical needs and spiritual needs. It's really the foundation of world help. How we explain it at world help is that we call it help for today and hope for tomorrow. And we believe that without things like food and clean water and medicines that our body needs, well, then faith, it means very little. But without Mm -hmm. faith that feeds our souls, Everything else is just a short-term fix. But when you focus on both body and soul, that's when true transformation happens in people's lives. And I've seen it play out over and over again. When 
around the world. When people have what they need to live another day, then deeper hungers emerge, a hunger for belonging, a hunger for community, a hunger for God's word and his ways. And I believe that both of those hungers matter to God and both of those hungers should matter to us. That is so good. And that is so well said. Um, the, the and part of this, the both and. So right. we're talking about help and hope. We're talking about yes. body and soul. Um, yeah. You might list, be listening right now and you're thinking, okay, it's it's faith and works. It's grace and truth. Yes, you're getting the gist of this. That is the yeah. both. We are. That's the both we're talking about. Noel um, Yates is the author of both, Living Outside the Either Or of Your Faith. You don't have to choose um, either or. You can have both. And uh, I love what you said, Noel, when people have what they need for today, like literal physical daily bread, deeper hungers emerge. Um, yes. Maybe tell us a story about where you have seen that happen. The, my favorite story to share is really from the early years of World Health, but this really um, taught me so much. So in the early years of World Health, we were working a lot in Eastern Europe, and my dad and I visited, uh, it was one of the leading cancer hospitals in the area there at the time, but they had literally nothing. So they had the top doctors, but they had no resources, no medicines, uh, no uh, tools and things. They were literally washing out the gloves every night and hanging them to dry to reuse them the next day. They're using straws for tracheotomies. It was, it was awful. And my dad was a cancer survivor. So it was a super hard visit for him. Um, but while we were there, the doctor asked my dad for help to help send them supplies they need. And my dad promised that we would. Long story short, we were able to send about 13 huge ocean going containers full of supplies to this hospital and I was there on one of those visits when one of the shipments arrived and literally saw doctors and medical personnel running out of procedures, ripping these boxes open to grab something that they needed right then. And on that visit, that doctor pulled me aside and he said, young lady, I want you to give your father a message. He said, I want you to tell him that you are the first Americans to ever keep their promise. Those powerful yeah. words. But you fast forward to one of our last visits there. And that same doctor came up to my dad and said, you know, at first I did not accept your faith, but now I have seen it in action. I now accept your faith. And to me, that's just the best example of what we're talking about here, of that combination of, of meeting people's needs that opens that door for them to see the faith that we say we take so seriously. I think in other environments, um, particularly when I think about like youth ministry here in the United States, one of the things that we would talk about would be like winning the right to be heard, like oh, demonstrating, yes. demonstrating through your friendship, through your life, through the keeping of your promises, by demonstrating your trustworthiness, um, by actually, you know, following through and doing what you say you're going to do. You you win. You earn the right to be heard. And that's part of what you are um, chronicling here for us in your own lived experience. And then, you know, encouraging us to go and do likewise. So I want to um, I want to go to a very brief break. And when we come back, Noel, I want you to um, invite us to rethink what missions look looks like, like how, how do we actually start 
in this direction. Um, and part of that is simply by what we look at and what we focus on. And so I want you to to talk about um, not, you know, constantly picking the pepper and focusing on all of the problems and conflict and brokenness and disease and decay, but how do we actually start looking for and celebrating signs of life out there and investing in those. So we're going to continue our conversation with Noel Brewer-Yates. The book is both Living Outside the Either-Or of Your Faith, and you can also check out worldhelp.net. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Noel Brewer-Yates. We're talking about worldhelp.net, and we're also talking about her book, Both, Living Outside the Either-Or of Your Faith. Um, Noel, there, you know, there, there are desperate circumstances in every direction that we might look, and a lot of people have just chosen not to look. Um, but you are inviting us to look differently. Um, so give us a different vision, maybe a different way to think about what missions look like. Um, You're inviting us to start looking for signs of life instead of just focusing on problems and conflict and brokenness and disease and decay. Just talk, talk with us about that. So there's a few things I would say to that. First of all, you know, as I've talked about my book, it's interesting how some people react and some people think that, that what I'm presenting here is so obvious. And I think to some, maybe it is. Um, but I think we're not acknowledging how this plays out in a, in, a, in a lot of our lives and a lot of our churches and communities. And one of the challenges I have for people is missions has got to be more than Mission Sunday at your church. It's got to be more than Missions Emphasis Week or the trip that you choose to take once a year. That That's sort of what's happened is we've made this a choice versus who we are as people of faith and what we are called to do. This is who we are. This is how we should live our lives, you know, right outside our door in our own neighborhoods. And yes, halfway around the world. One of the things I write about in the book that really, really impacted me is this devotional that I read and I'll summarize it really quick, but in it, it talked about how in the gospels, and Jesus used the word save or saved less than 10 times, but we see the reference to his coming kingdom more than 150 times. And then it talks about how the gospel should not just be good news for our souls. It should be good news for the world. And oh my gosh, that got me. The gospel should not just be good news for our souls. It should be good news for the world. And if the gospel isn't good news, you know, for um, people impacted right now of what's going on in the Holy Land, it isn't good news at all. If the gospel isn't good news for people fleeing for their lives in Ukraine, it isn't good news at all. The gospel has to be good news for the world. So my challenge to people is make sure the gospel you're presenting is good news for the world. And how do we do that? 
by meeting people where they are and meeting their physical and spiritual needs. And then the last thing I would say to your point is a lesson I learned early on. The needs of the world are so overwhelming. And if you look at it that way, you'll get frozen, paralyzed, feel like everything you do is a drop in the bucket. But I learned early on, God is not asking me to save the world. That's his job. But I can help the one person he puts in front of me. We can always help one person. Mother Teresa had this great quote, if I look at the masses, I will never act. But if I look at the one, I will. And we can always help the one. Amen. I mean, that's like the starfish, right? I mean, you know, and the yes. people who look at us and are like, you know, you're not helping, you know, you can't help them all. I'm like, I can help this one. I can't. No, I can you're right. Them. I can't. I cannot help every child, but I could sponsor one. Um, yes. I cannot. Yeah. And so let me just encourage you, um, if you haven't done so already, check out what is happening at worldhelp.net. Um, all kinds. Of, maybe you have a particular place in the globe you're concerned about. Maybe you have a particular international crisis that, um, you know, God's got your heart beating in that direction right now. Maybe um, maybe it's child sponsorship in a particular place for you, um, and you want to uh, not only focus on a country, but, you know, you could put your birthday in there um, or a particular birthday maybe of your own child or grandchild. Um, there's all kinds of opportunities at worldhelp.net. Um, just a really wonderful place for folks to engage. Um, when you... When you think about people, uh, Christians in particular in the West, who um, there's, they're trapped in what I would describe as like a guilt, uh, a guilt relationship with the rest of the world. How, how do you like move us from a guilt sense of things to a God has given us access to and stewardship over incredible resources more than than any uh, group of people in human history and god really desires to see that activated toward justice and radical generosity like how do you move people from guilt to radical generosity oh gosh what a great question i i do think that's an important point i think that people um do operate out of that guilt feeling and i don't think anything good or sustainable for that matter comes out of that I think I would go back to just a little bit more of what I have already said. When you operate um, from the perspective of this is who we are as people of faith, that um, if, if we take our faith seriously, this is a natural outpouring of our faith. It's not about guilt. It's not about feeling ashamed for all of our blessings that we have. It's about using it for good and and living out the faith we say we take so seriously. Mm. Um, tell us a little bit about um, about your family and like you know like where are you guys? Uh, who who are your people? Like, give us a little window into your day. Uh, well, the, so you've already heard a bit about my dad. He's moved. He's now the founder of the organization and still uh, works and represents the organization. My uh, immediate family, my husband is actually a judge, so he has a totally oh, cool. different kind of work. I like to tell people we're on different ends of the justice spectrum. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I am, a, I am a bit of an empty nester. I have two grown boys. Um, one is still finishing college and one is finished in college. 
So I have a full life in that way. And I spend a whole lot of my time traveling and representing world health, especially doing international travel, which is probably um, one of my favorite parts of my job to be able to see this work firsthand on the ground. And World Help's model is what we call a partner model. So we don't, we're not setting up uh, World Help offices all around the world. We're working with people, mostly nationals in these countries, whenever possible, who are doing a good work that we can come alongside and help resource them and empower them to reach their people. So one of the best parts of my job is being able to work with those partners on the ground who are the real heroes of these stories. Oh, that is so great. Um, you guys work um, all over the world. I guess I'm wondering how how things like right now um, are affecting um, folks that you're talking with. Like, what is your what is your sense of um, of how people around the world are are feeling and how how they are feeling toward us as well? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes sense. I think that's a, a broadly a little hard to answer, but I, you know, I think we're all feeling crisis overload, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's like we wake up every morning and it's a new crisis. And, you know, mm-hmm. going back to your, your point before, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed, guilty, and then there's so much going on to feel, how can I make a difference? I think partly to answer your question with the people that that we're that we partner with around the world, they are so, so very grateful um, for the help from what we call the World Health family um, and and depend on it so much, not not in an unhealthy way, but in a time of crisis you know, really depend on uh, the support of people of faith and people from the World Health family. So I think I would encourage people, you know, to remember that, that there is so much good that you can do right now when the world just sometimes feels on fire. And mm-hmm. and I know it does right now. And I think we, we have to fight that feeling of not being able to make a difference because I could tell you story after story of the lives that are being changed because people are willing to get involved. And when it comes to crisis, um, you know, you can pretty much guarantee if there's a crisis that hits the news that World Help is on the ground there helping and make a difference. So there's always a way to help, whether it's, you know, providing a family survival pack, you know, for what's going on now um, in the Holy Land and things that people need to survive another day or what's going on in Ukraine, helping people until they can once again go home. There are incredible ways to make a difference for $35, $50, you know, um, something we can all uh, be a part of and to do something, you know, to fight that overwhelm by doing something. I love that. I love that. It's very empowering. Um, And so let me encourage you again, check it out, worldhelp.net. As we wrap up uh, our conversation today, we want to be praying for Noel. We want to be praying for each and every precious person being served um, through World Help. Again, check it out, worldhelp.net. Let's be praying today with with and for those who are struggling um, for their daily bread. And let's be looking at the resources God has placed under our stewardship. What is he asking you to leverage for the kingdom's advancement today, both in um, body and in soul? 
let's um let's get those resources moving into the economy of the kingdom that people might um, live and be blessed. Thank you so much for this time together today. You've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. we got a ton of resources posted for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Love for you to check that out. You can always give me a shout as well, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.